Hello and welcome to this edition of our Market Horizons podcast series. I'm Amanda Thomas, head of our London International Capital Markets Practice and our know-how and training team. And I'm joined today by Tom Grant, head of our London General Securities Group, Julianne Sebastian, a partner in our Paris International Capital Markets team, and Jennifer Creswell, a counsellor in our International Capital Markets know-how and training team. We're going to be talking about one of the currently most discussed topics in the mainstream debt capital markets and beyond, namely ESG. I just want to do a bit of scene setting before turning to Tom, Julianne and Jen. We're going to focus today on developments and challenges relating to use of proceeds bonds. These use of proceeds bonds are basically standard debt obligations where the proceeds are used to fund a specific sustainable project or activity. The market's developed various types of these instruments, including green bonds, social bonds, climate bonds, blue bonds, and so on. We're not going to be covering SLBs, which by contrast are a type of bond instrument for which the financial and or structural characteristics, typically the coupon, can vary depending on whether the issuer achieves predefined sustainability and or ESG objectives. These objectives are generally reflected in stated sustainability performance targets or SPTs. We may visit those in a later Market Horizons podcast. Having said that use of proceeds bonds are effectively standard debt obligations, there are some differences when compared to conventional bonds. Primarily, these relate to the disclosure about use of proceeds and any extra protections banks might want in the underwriting agreement, and Tom will come on to these shortly. And of course, ICMA's green and social bond principles underpin all of this. Their voluntary process guidelines recommending transparency and disclosure for issuers. They also have key recommendations in them, one being that issuers should explain how their green and social bonds align with the principles. So, for example, how they allocate projects as green, manage the proceeds, etc. in a framework. That framework has to be available to investors and it usually goes onto the issuer's website. There may well be a green coordinator involved, that's a key role, and the issuer spends a lot of time with the green coordinator on the preparation of the framework. An external reviewer will also be involved and they review the alignment of the framework and the bond with the four core components of the principles. The green coordinator might also be involved in those discussions with the external reviewer. And then finally, the second party opinion is published on the issuer's website. So that's enough on the scene setting front. Let's get into some detail. Tom, I know there's been an enormous amount of growth in the green bond market. Can you briefly talk about this and perhaps how we've seen it play out in terms of the deals we advise on? Thanks, Amanda. The ESG market is growing at an increasing pace. a as a whole is involved in all kinds of ESG funding, but in unsecured DCM matters, roughly a quarter of all of our transactions in the last 12 months were use of proceeds-style ESG bonds. We're seeing more and more programmes having an ESG option, with more and more trades and standalones being issued as ESG bonds. This means we're involved in deals covering a massive range of issuers, sectors, jurisdictions and types of deal being brought to market. So I mentioned earlier that one of the differences between a use of proceeds bond and a conventional bond is disclosure. Tom, it would be interesting to hear your views on what you'd expect to see in terms of disclosure in a use of proceeds bond prospectus and include how much information tends to be in there on the issuer's framework and how that might be impacted by information investor presentation materials. We need to keep in mind that a use of proceeds ESG bond doesn't impact the terms of the bond, but only relates to how an issuer says it will use the proceeds. So critically, no additions to the conditions, no new covenants, no new acceleration rights, and no new puts. 
Instead, it's essentially a disclosure matter. And if the issuer doesn't do what they say they're going to do, investors could have recourse against the issuer, but not the ability to accelerate their bonds. In a typical use of proceeds ESG bond, three extra things could be included in the prospectus. First, a legend at the front. Typically, this says the underwriting banks do not make a representation as to investor suitability or undertake to verify the projects or their compliance with the framework. Next, a risk factor. This had expanded over the years and is now typically pretty lengthy. For a green bond, one of the main points covered is what is green for the issuer may not be green for the investor. So investors need to make up their own mind as to whether or not it meets their criteria. Banks have got even more focus on their risk factors because of EBA guidance from last summer on the content of risk factors for green, MREL or own funds issues. So the risk factor for banks tends to be longer than for corporates. Finally, we'd see additional information in the use of proceeds section. A typical approach is to say an amount equal to the net proceeds will or is intended to be used for green projects which are in compliance with the issuer's framework. What is very clear is that the arranging banks don't want the framework itself to be incorporated by reference, so a common approach is to provide a link to it, but to be clear that it does not form part of the formal disclosure package. There's been an ongoing concern that investors actually need to understand a bit more about the intended use of proceeds and the content of the framework to make an informed investment decision. Different views have been expressed on this, though. On one hand, the ESG feature doesn't ordinarily go to a credit analysis. But on the other hand, investors are buying a green bond, which is being marketed as such, and the investor presentation and often even the roadshow announcement will contain additional information referencing the framework. Some have queried whether this creates a tension. While it's not irreconcilable, to alleviate that tension we're seeing some issuers looking to include in their prospectus more information on their framework. Not a long-form copy yet, but a high-level summary. This is by no means unanimous though. If an issuer did want a summary of the framework, headline points could include information on the types of projects the bond may fund, what the arrangements are for management of the proceeds in the meantime, and information on its reporting plans. Okay, so we're still seeing a range of different approaches. And of course, Tom, the level of disclosure is linked to the comfort given to the underwriting banks. I'd be interested to know what you're seeing on that front and whether you think there's a best practice approach or particular points that need to be considered. Thanks. Again, we're seeing issuers and underwriters adopting a range of approaches. At one end of a spectrum, some ESG subscription agreements look exactly the same as a non-ESG one. So no additional representations or undertakings are given. I'd say middle ground is more common though. Because the use of proceeds is so key to a green bond, we would more typically see an express undertaking given by the issuer to use the proceeds in the manner disclosed. At the other end of the spectrum, we see some underwriters asking for an undertaking to keep the framework publicly available and to do the reporting required by the framework. But while some banks do want these additional provisions, other banks actively do not want to receive them. The reason being they don't want any suggestion that they've got any ongoing role in policing the issuer, and a covenant to do something for the life of the bond might be seen to undermine that position. Until there's a clearer market practice, my own approach is to ask the Docs Bank upfront as to their preference, and until then, it will require a conversation with each of the other banks once they get added on. That's really helpful, Tom. Thank you. Um, now, turning to you, Julia, I'm sure you're seeing all these kinds of discussions on the deals you're working on. Are you seeing a similar approach in the French market or where there's a French listing? Um, maybe you're seeing certain trends, for example, in relation to disclaimer language or the kind of diligence that's being conducted? Thank you, Amanda. 
The French green bond market has been extremely dynamic and most of the transactions on which we work on now include an ESG component. In terms of documentation, market participants are also getting more sophisticated with respect to prospectuses, inclusion of disclaimer or legends regarding managers' liability, or due diligence on ESG aspects is pretty common, in addition to risk factors. With respect to dealer or subscription agreements, the situation is similar to the one described by Tom. We see different requirements depending on the banks involved. However, there is a clear tendency to build up the reps and warranties on the ESG aspect, including on the content of the framework agreement. The development and expansion of the green bond market is at the top of the agenda of the French financial community and is supported by the AMF, the French Financial Markets Authority. I think a good illustration of that support lies in the fact that the AMF published, together with its Dutch equivalent, the AFM, in 2019, a common position paper on ESG bonds, the purpose of which was to contribute to the creation of a legal framework for a market that is still largely unregulated, and also to reinforce transparency. It also means that the AMF is very familiar with ESG issuances and has established different practices for issuance of green bonds, including the need to have a green bond framework in place and a second-party opinion before launching a transaction. Well done on getting the AFM and the AMF the right way around there, Julian. Always confuses me. Um, I know that you've been recently working on what I'll call reverse engineering or the relabeling of certain bonds as green bonds. And I think Tom and others have also advised on similar work. It would be interesting to hear your views on this in terms of the objectives of that kind of exercise and how issuers are using liability management to enhance their ESG strategy. As with many things, I suppose there might be some associated constraints and risks there. This topic is really interesting because it shows how liability management can facilitate the transition to sustainable finance. In June 2021, we advised GCNA on the transformation of all of its outstanding conventional debt into green bonds. GCNA is a French real estate company listed on Euronext Paris and is part of the SBF 120. Interestingly, before conducting this groundbreaking transaction, GCNA never issued a green bond. One may wonder what is the rationale for a company to do such a transaction. Well, as already mentioned, issuing a green bond means that the issuing entity announced its intention to use the proceeds of the bonds to fund eligible green assets or green projects or green investments. Gisina wanted to have a global approach with intention to allocate the equivalent of all of its 6 billion euros in outstanding debt to green assets and projects rather than an asset by assets approach. One route could have been to refinance all Gisina's existing bonds with a new green bond which for obvious reasons might be a difficult exercise to do for any type of issuers. The alternative was the green transformation, which raised a certain number of questions, as you can imagine, one of which was whether consent solicitation was needed. The view under French law that it was necessary to consult the existing bondholders of the 15 outstanding series of bonds issued by Gessina and to request their approval, which has been obtained. The consultation was also a good way to onboard investors and engage with them to explain this new type of transaction and avoid any risk of misunderstanding. Gessina opened the way with this transformation and other companies in the real estate sector have followed in Spain and also in France with ICAD 
that we advised on the Greenborn transformation, and we are currently working on other projects. My view is that this type of transactions will develop in the coming months and extend to other sectors, in particular for issuers with green assets who do not have financing needs or access to the market given the current conditions. Thanks, Julian. I know, Tom, that it's a slightly different position under English law. That's right. Whilst an issue would need to be very careful about investor sensitivities and any perception of greenwashing its existing debt, since a green bond doesn't impact the terms of the bonds, ordinarily a consent process should not technically be required to affect a rebadging of an English law bond to become a green bond. The key is that it complies with and will continue to comply with the framework going forward. Last but not least then, Jen, I'm going to turn to you. We've been talking about market practice with reference to the ICMA principles, but perhaps you can quickly cover what might be coming down the track in terms of potential legal frameworks for green bonds. Thanks, Amanda. Aside from what Julianne has mentioned in terms of what the AMF and AFM might expect in prospectuses, there isn't at the moment a specific legal framework in place in the UK or at EU level for issuance of green bonds other than the need to disclose use of proceeds under the Prospectus Regulation and UKPR. In the UK at the end of last year, the FCA said in a policy statement that there is a case to consider for introducing a climate-related disclosure requirement for debt securities and that prospectus disclosures may be more relevant and decision useful to investors than annual entity-level disclosures. We have for a while, Amanda, suspected this may be bound up in the wider UK prospectus regime overhaul. And the FCA has just published Feedback Statement 22.4, which signals further work to strengthen debt issuers' transparency on climate-related matters and to reconsider prospectus disclosure requirements as part of the review of the UK prospectus regime. In the Feedback Statement, The FCA noted that there wasn't clear overall support from respondents for additional measures to strengthen contractual terms in relation to use of proceeds or to enhance the information on use of proceeds required to be disclosed in a prospectus. However, there was support for existing industry principles, particularly the ICMA principles, rather than more rigid regulatory requirements. So the FCA encouraged issuers to apply those. And in the related primary market bulletin, the FCA reminds the market that materials accompanying prospectus advertisements shouldn't overpromise and must be consistent with the prospectus. So for now, we don't appear to be looking at a forthcoming UK green bond standard, although that may change in the future. And in the meantime, we'll of course be watching things as the UK prospectus review continues and develops. So I suppose, Jen, that this brings us on to the fact that the EU are taking quite a different approach with the EU Green Bond Regulation, which we understand is in trilogue discussions starting in July. Yes, and that envisages a voluntary standard for bonds that want the label with EU taxonomy regulation alignment for use of proceeds. There are challenges with this and also because before issuing an EU Green Bond, issuers would have to complete a Green Bond fact sheet and have it reviewed by an external reviewer. That could create timing problems and impact ability to get a deal away. There are detailed requirements for what must be in the fact sheet. For example, the issuer would have to disclose how the bond contributes to its broader environmental strategy, 
and the Parliament position around this gets more challenging as the issuer must disclose information on its, so issuer-level, taxonomy alignment, as well as information about how the bond is intended to increase its proportion of CAPEX and OPEX related to and turnover derived from economic activities that qualify as environmentally sustainable under the taxonomy regulation. Oh, and under the Parliament proposals, the fact sheet would have to be fully integrated into any EU PR prospectus, which would bring with it prospectus standard liability for the fact sheet and disclosures in it. I should also mention that the Parliament's position includes requirements that apply more widely to bonds marketed in the Union as environmentally sustainable, that is to green bonds that aren't even using the EU green bond label. For example, issuers would have to disclose in their pre-contractual disclosures and query exactly what they are, how the environment characteristics of the bond are met, and also intended allocation of bond proceeds by reference to the information that would, for an EU green bond, be included in the fact sheet. And these would have to be reviewed by external reviewers. Again, this would have timing implications. Finally, the Parliament position would impose civil liability on an issuer for damages incurred as a result of a breach of certain key articles. The Council position doesn't have various of these additional things I've mentioned. However, for example, rather than include a civil liability provision, it gets the issuer on the hook from a different angle, as it would require an issuer of an EU green bond to include something in the terms and conditions of the bond whereby it states it will comply with the EU Green Bond Regulation. So, contractual liability for taxonomy alignment, the fact sheet and allocation, etc. It's fair to say we'll be concerned to see where the EU Green Bond standard comes out, as it would be very worrying if it turns issuers away from green bond issuance. That's really helpful to understand and obviously means that there's lots to keep us busy in the coming months and years. Thank you very much, Jen, and to Julianne and Tom for your insights. And it just remains for me to thank everyone for listening and to say goodbye for now.